Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit us online at redemption.ca. All right, well, go ahead and find your seats again. Nice to be able to fellowship. It's already been a great morning. Great to be together as God's people, to worship. Uh, It's a joy to be together here with you. A warm welcome to those who are watching online. We're glad you could watch the service in that way, and we look forward to you coming in person when you're able to. Well, I want to just jump right in with a question here. There's the question. How would you complete the sentence? How would you complete the sentence? God is fill in the blank. God is, how would you complete that sentence? You know, what, what you think about God and how you view him is really quite important. In some ways, how you complete that sentence really tells a lot about you. In fact, A.W. Tozer famously wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that's true. And of course, there are lots of ways you could describe our great God. God is love. God is light. God is holy. God is good. God is powerful. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is kind. God is just, and so on. All those are wonderful and accurate ways of describing God. And we understand that you cannot capture God in a single word. We'll spend eternity getting to know his great character. I wonder, however, how often we would complete the sentence this way. God is Father. Now that's a significant statement. That is A statement loaded with implications. God is Father. You know, Jesus related to God primarily as his Father, and he instructed us to do the same. That's why God has addressed his Father literally hundreds of times in the Gospels, and why the Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father in Heaven. To really drive home the point, in his excellent book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer wrote these words. Listen carefully. You sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Those are strong and poignant words. J.I. Packer seems to think it's critical we view God as our Father. 
Well, as clear and unmistakable as that message is the New Testament, I believe we have a rich and meaningful example of God as Father in the Old Testament as well. Our text for today is one of those passages. Uh, This morning I'm excited to continue our series in the book of Genesis. Uh, If you may remember, the theme of Genesis is beginnings, and we've seen many beginnings throughout our time in Genesis, and we'll see another kind of beginning today, namely the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, The continuation of the Abrahamic line and the, the expansion of Jacob's family is what we'll look at, but it seems to happen in quite an unexpected way. Or maybe it's completely expected. If you've been paying attention, Genesis is full of surprising, sin-stained stories. I mean, the first man and woman sinned and hid from God. Noah was a righteous man, but still made some foolish decisions. Abram was a little too quick to surrender his wife to strangers. Sarah was a little too keen to give her husband to a servant. And most recently, we saw Jacob and Rebekah work together to deceive their entire family. I mean, throughout our study, we have repeatedly seen God's sovereign grace to undeserving sinners. So as we approach Genesis 29, keep in mind that God is indeed accomplishing his redemption plans, and he's doing so with his fatherly faithfulness. From the text, we will observe three evidences of God's fatherly faithfulness that encourage us to worship and obey. Three evidences of God's fatherly faithfulness. This story will remind us that God is Father, God is faithful, and God is at work even in the most difficult and unusual circumstances. Let's pray and we'll get into it. Father, we thank you that we can gather here and sit under the preaching of your word. We thank you that you've spoken so clearly in your word, decisively about who you are and the way of salvation. And we thank you that when we put our faith in you, you gift us with the Spirit that we may know you, we may know your word, and we may be conformed into your image. That's our prayer this morning. Lord, that as we um, hear from you through your word, uh, that you would shape us, mold us, cause us to be more like you, bring conviction where needed, bring encouragement where needed. Use this time very intentionally in all of our lives as we know because you are Father, you care for us individually. You care for us in the details You're here with us, and we can trust you. So, Lord, we commit this time to you for your glory and our good. Amen. Well, if you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to Genesis 29. And if you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand. Our ushers would gladly supply you a copy to keep or use for the day. Well, as you turn to the text, let me just say, this is a strange true story. I mean, this is, this is not the first unusual or surprising story in Genesis, and it will not be the last, but here we have a historical narrative that has all the makings of a multi-season sitcom. I mean, this is binge-worthy. There, there is high drama with true love, romance, hate, deception, manipulation, bribery, jealousy, wife wars, sibling rivalries, birthing battles, and a cliffhanger ending. Uh, the main actress is a beautiful and conniving. The lead actor is tenacious. And the hero, that is the Messiah, is only subtly introduced and will be fully revealed at a later episode. You know, sometimes when you read the Bible, we have to remind ourselves that this really happened. Uh, these are real people. And God's sovereign grace to undeserving sinners is intentionally put on display 
for our encouragement. 30 chapters into the biblical history of the world, I mean, we've, we're convinced at this point that people are sinful, selfish, foolish, and often hard-hearted. And we're also convinced that God is gracious, merciful, compassionate, faithful, and today we'll add fatherly. The main point of today's sermon is that God's, is God's fatherly faithfulness. The first evidence of his fatherly faithfulness is this. God fulfills his covenant promises despite our sin. God fulfills our co- his covenant promises despite our sin. We see this in the first 30 verses. But before, if you remember last week, Rebecca convinced Isaac to send Jacob to Laban so that he could get a wife from among their people, but also so that Esau wouldn't kill Jacob for stealing his blessing. At the start of Jacob's journey, he had a dream, and God reaffirmed the Abrahamic covenant to him. God will give Jacob and his offspring the land. God will multiply Jacob's offspring like the dust of the earth. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through Jacob and his offspring. Plus, God promised to protect Jacob and to be with him. So after the dream, Jacob worshipped God and made a conditional vow. With that in mind, chapter 29 begins with these words. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. What's really not quite so obvious in this first verse is that Jacob went on a very long journey. I mean, it was about 740 kilometers to visit um, Laban in Haran. I mean, that is probably over 100 hours of walking, maybe two or three weeks. Uh, So this is not a quick little journey. Uh, The journey, however, has a newfound purpose for Jacob. Jacob wasn't merely fleeing his murderous brother. He was pursuing a wife in order to fulfill God's covenant promise. No doubt Jacob's mom, Rebekah, had told him about the time when Isaac received a wife from Laban's household. Now it was Jacob's turn. So when Jacob did finally arrive in Haran, he found a well, met Rachel, and made the wedding arrangements. Pick it up in verse 2. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the live is it not time for the livestock to be gathered together? Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with his father's sheep, with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban's, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. 
Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Stop there. Notice that Jacob arrived at a well. And a well is often a sign of God's blessing. And in this case, it's evidence of God's sovereign grace. I, want, I mean, remember, Jacob did not have Google Maps. Uh, he, did not, he did not text Laban and say, hey, bro, can you, can you pin me your location? Personally, I'm quite undirectional. So I quite like the map apps. And Jacob here was on this massive journey and arrived at the well. To put that in perspective, that would be like walking to Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, and arriving at a specific house without any directions. For the reader, the well makes it obvious that God is directing these events. God is involved. God is accomplishing his plan. The well itself had a large stone rolled over it to protect it from debris and impurities and animals. The stone was usually rolled away once a day to limit the debris from blowing in and so that all the, sh- all the shepherds could be sure they had equal access to it. Now, notice something here. Jacob boldly, if not arrogantly, questioned the shepherds' carefree, lazy behavior as they were unwilling to remove the stone. Why would they not water the flocks and return to the pasture while it was still sunlight? Why are they wasting daylight? Well, Jacob doesn't accept their answer, and he removes the heavy stone himself, which, incidentally, gave him an opportunity to impress Rachel. Uh, The stone was not usually rolled away by one man, but many men, but Jacob does the deed. He was zealous. He knew what he wanted, and he went after it. We've seen this before with the birthright and the blessing. His actions contrast the shepherd's. So that Jacob appears generous, industrious, and energetic. He was a man on a mission. In some ways, it was love at first sight. Jacob was even so audacious to kiss Rachel before introducing himself. Rachel didn't seem to mind, and she ran home to tell her father. Next, Jacob meets Laban. Pick it up in verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are, bone, you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and, then see, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Stop there. You know, it, it seems Laban was initially quite excited at Jacob's arrival. Sure, he wants his daughter to get married, but you got to wonder in the back of his mind if he's not thinking, here we go again. Last time Abraham's servant came, we got gold and silver and lavish gifts. 
This is a good deal. After a month, however, Laban noticed there was no dowry gift, and he was ready to negotiate a dowry deal and cut through the awkwardness. You see, there's kind of a dilemma. A dilemma here. Jacob is staying at Laban's house, and he's working for Laban. Jacob plans to stay a while, which implies that he'll work to pay for his stay. Laban, however, does not want Jake to treat Jacob merely as a hired servant because he's family. So Laban asked Jacob, what should I give you in return for your service? Jacob is smitten with Rachel, so he goes big with his commitment to work seven years for her hand in marriage. Uh, the arrangement works because Jacob doesn't have a proper dowry, and it provides the opportunity for Laban to deceive Jacob to extend it for another, another seven years, as we'll see shortly. So in this culture, usually the father of the bride-to-be had a bride price or a dowry to offset the cost of raising his daughter and to compensate for the loss of her service. If the bridegroom didn't have the means for, to give a dowry, he could perform a service instead. As I said, when Abram's servant came on behalf of Isaac, he gave gifts. Jacob was empty-handed, so he offers to work. And note here that seven years would be the maximum offer because Mosaic law required all debts canceled at the end of seven years. So Jacob goes all in. He was not risking a refusal, a fact that Laban would exploit, just as Jacob had exploited Esau's eagerness not long ago. We're also told that Leah had weak eyes and Rachel was beautiful. Kind of a, just a, an editor's note here that gives us some perspective. Leah's eyes were probably lacked, they lacked luster. They, they were per- perhaps dull and unimpressive. Um, this is significant because a woman's eyes are part of her charm, especially when they're wearing the traditional veil that covered most of their face. Leah's eyes were compared to Rachel's beauty with the implication that Leah was plain in, in face and form. Thus, Jacob was captivated by Rachel's physical beauty and uninterested in Leah. We note here that both Abraham and Isaac both had physically beautiful wives. So Rachel's beauty, indicated here, seems to, seems to help us see that God's sovereign grace is continuing to pass along the covenant promises. I don't mean that God's covenant grace provided beautiful wives. What I mean is the beautiful wives are indications that, that God is at work here. There's a, there's a trend here. We see God providing. We see God at work. And at this point, the similarities between Abraham's, Abraham's servant's trip to visit Laban and Jacob's journey are becoming obvious. The introductions both happened at a well. The appearances of, Re- of Rebecca and Rachel were both sudden and timely. Laban is involved. Um, Rebecca and Rachel were both beautiful, as we said. The point here for the reader is to ensure that, that we know that the Lord has guided Jacob just as he did Abraham's servant. Well, let's continue in verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah 
and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and you will... And we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for seven more years. So here we are again. And after Jacob has worked these seven years in kind of Jacob-like style, he demands the reward for his labor. He loves Rachel, and he's worked hard to earn the right to marry her, which only intensifies the drama and the anguish when he wakes up next to Leah. You've heard it said that what goes around comes around. Well, we understand there's no such thing as karma, but there, there is sometimes divine irony or poetic justice. And in this case, divine discipline The deceiver was deceived. Through Laban, Jacob received a dose of his own duplicity and God's discipline. Jacob had met his match and he didn't have his crafty mother to bail him out. In this case, it seems he would would have experienced the gut-wrenching feeling his brother had known. Jacob, the younger son, had pretended to be his older brother to gain the blessing And now Leah, the older sister, pretended to be the younger sister to gain a husband. Quite ironic. The deception was perfectly fitted for Jacob, designed to expose his own deceitfulness and sinfulness. And the anticlimax peaks with the words, Behold, it was Leah. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine waking up on the first day of your honeymoon to your spouse's sibling? I mean, wow. During the wedding feast, the bride wore a veil during the week of the feast, and there was probably enough alcohol to diminish Jacob's power of observation, so Laban took the opportunity. And once Jacob slept with Leah, the deception was complete and the action irrevocable because law and decency bound Jacob to the honorable duty of upholding the marriage. Now, Laban justified his deceit by appealing to a kind of an ancient Near Eastern custom that the younger is not to get married before the firstborn, a a tradition that is actually still practiced in some countries. Jacob would then work another seven years because even though Laban tricked him into marrying Leah, there would still be a cost, still a dowry required for Rachel. So Jacob paid another dowry price now for the second daughter. Jacob, however, did receive Rachel before he worked the additional seven years, which removed the possibility of another crooked deal. Uh, The point of these first 30 verses is that God fulfills his covenant promises despite our sinfulness. I mean, it's difficult to find many redeeming qualities of Jacob, and yet God is carrying on the Abrahamic covenant through him. God brought discipline, but he also brought blessings Jacob seems to have 
Jacob's sins seemed to have consequences as he experienced much strife and turmoil, but he also he will also be the father of many sons. God, not Laban or Jacob, was in control. He would ensure that Jacob marries and produces offspring. He would unexpectedly prepare the way for the priestly and kingly tribes of Levi and Judah through Leah, not Rachel. He would oversee a sibling rivalry that would produce the 12 tribes of Israel. The point for you and me is that God continues to fulfill his covenant promises despite our sinfulness. Your sin does not disqualify you from God's promises. If you're a child of God, then his fatherly faithfulness will keep you and produce Christ in you. He's in control of every circumstance in your life, ensuring that it is all worked towards your good and his glory. I mean, if God can be at work in this mess, he can certainly be at work in your life and in mine. Take heart and take courage. God is for you, God is with you, and God is your caring Father. Well, the rest of the passage is all about babies. I mean, lots of babies, mostly sons. Amidst the wife wars and the sibling rivalries, the birthing battles, we see more of God's fatherly faithfulness. In fact, really the pinnacle of it. Point number two is this. God sees his afflicted people despite our selfishness. God sees his afflicted people despite our selfishness. The next section begins in verse 31. It says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her her womb, but Rachel was barren. We've already seen that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. We're now told that Jacob actually hated Leah. Not that just she was unloved, she was neglected and rejected. And this does not go unnoticed by the God of the universe. The Lord saw Leah. And in verse 33 it says, The Lord heard Leah. The Lord saw that she was rejected and he heard her cries for mercy. The Lord had compassion on the unloved and neglected wife. This really is a powerful and precious verse. One that showcases God's fatherly faithfulness. You, remember, you may remember when Sarah was barren and she gave Hagar to Abraham. Hagar bore a son and Sarah treated her harshly. At that time, the pre-incarnate Christ found Hagar and cared for her and she called him the God who sees. Later, Sarah cast out Hagar and Ishmael. When she was weeping, that is when Hagar was weeping at the point of death, God heard Hagar and provided for her and her son. In both instances, God tenderly cared for an otherwise hopeless and helpless servant. Another example is when Israel is enslaved to the Egyptians. In Exodus 2.24, it says, And God heard their groanings, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Later in Exodus 3.7, it also reads, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. God sees, God hears, God knows. 
Here with Leah, God was doing it again because it's his nature to care. His fatherly faithfulness is central to his character. He is alert and aware of the needs of his people. He is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Uh, Dane Ortland wrote, The father's tender care envelops us with pursuing gentleness, sweetly governing every last detail of our lives. God saw what Leah's husband did not. God cared for Leah in ways that Jacob did not. He is the ultimate bridegroom and loving husband. He is the faithful and compassionate father. God cares for Leah. God's care for Leah is especially remarkable given the context. I mean, we sympathize with Leah because she was thrust into a marriage with a husband who hated her and who loved her sister instead. But the rivalry between her between these sisters, is really marked by selfishness. Look again at the text. Pick it up in verse 32. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant, Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and has and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. She called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. I mean, wow. I I, I mean, the wives are just at one another in a competitive sort of way. And Jacob is just like this wife pawn. To bear children. But notice that God's compassion toward Leah resulted in her bearing four sons uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Each son's name tells a story and increases Leah's hope of being loved. Reuben means see, a son. And Leah thought Jacob would love her after he was born. Uh, Simeon means heard because the Lord heard she was hated. 
Levi means attached and brought greater hope that Jacob would attach would be attached to Leah. And Judah means praise and seems to represent kind of Leah's acceptance that Jacob did not love her, so she renewed her hope in the Lord. Uh, Leah, in many ways, sought to earn Jacob's love and recognition with sons. At the time, with the birth of each son, she believed God was caring for her. She, she believed this was God's care. For, he was providing sons, which may, in effect, prov- endow, endear, endear her to Jacob. Jacob, however, was cold and stubborn toward Leah, even while God was blessing her. God was gracious and faithful, and he was fatherly in his care for Leah. Meanwhile, while uh, Leah is having sons, Rachel was getting jealous. She was barren, a condition that both Sarah and uh, Rebecca had also experienced. Uh, Humanly speaking, barrenness was a tragedy and sometimes viewed even as a curse. Spiritually speaking, we know that God opens and closes the womb. I mean, even Jacob recognized God's sovereignty over pregnancy. Uh, Barrenness really becomes this opportunity for God to demonstrate his covenant grace through miraculous pregnancies. Right? You can track it all through Scripture, even to the um, miraculous birth of our Savior. God wants to demonstrate that he's in control of the family, divine family line. In this case, it seems God wanted Jacob and Rachel also to experience Leah's pain. It's possible Rachel's barrenness was God's discipline on Jacob. Instead of brokenness, though, uh, Rachel doesn't, just, she doesn't move towards repentance. She gives her servant to Jacob. And Jacob listened to the voice of his wife. The servant Bilhah bore Rachel two sons, and Leah marshaled a counterattack, right? Well, you're going to give your servant? Well, I'll give my servant. Giving your servant to Jacob, who also gave her more sons. Uh, There's this kind of bitter struggle that's happening between the wives. Rachel and, and Leah use their sons as competition against one another and for the affection of Jacob. The point for you and me in all of this is that God champions the cause of the poor and oppressed. Thus, the despised Leah, the unloved wife, was exalted to be the first mother. She was seen. I mean, again, just consider Leah's situation here in a little bit more detail. She is the undesirable older sister who is unlikely to get married and thus unlikely to have children and thus almost useless in that society. One of her primary purposes in life was to have sons to carry on the family name. Well, she does end up getting married, but that's only because her dad tricked her beautiful sister's fiancé. And now she's married to a man who hates her, and she's inextricably linked to her more popular sister. I mean, to make matters worse, at least initially, she wasn't having children. That is, until God saw her and heard her. When we rightly view ourselves, we, we too recognize that we are poor and oppressed. We are weak and needy. We are desperate for grace. We are a lot like Leah. I mean, don't we all crave love and recognition? Uh, we definitely live in a culture that puts this on full display. Our Western world wants affirmation so badly it will sacrifice almost anything to get it. But listen, uh, we are not exempt 
Uh, We want our self-defined version of love and affirmation that we will too often sin to get our sin when we don't get. We virtue signal, manipulate our spouse, live as victims or stew in our self-pity. But we don't have to chase the approval of others. We don't have to find our identity in performance. God's fatherly faithfulness means he sees you and knows your circumstances. It means he cares and treats you according to his tender mercy. At times we feel unloved and unseen. We can, again, relate to Leah. But here again, these words from Dane Ortland. As you consider the Father's heart for you, remember that he is the Father of mercies. He is not cautious in his tenderness towards you. He multiplies mercies matched to every, your every need. And there is nothing, there is nothing he would rather do. Brothers and sisters, we have a, a Father who is kind and gracious and tender who sees you and hears you and is with you and is part of every detail in your life. And with that, he's in sovereign control, working all these things for your good. Life can be hard, but God is in the midst of it. Well, finally, a third evidence of God's fatherly faithfulness. Point number three. God remembers his redemptive purposes despite our scheming. God remembers his redemptive purposes despite our scheming. Chapter 30 continues the drama with more scheming. I mean, we've already seen almost, I mean, so many tactics already used up to this point to gain the upper hand in the birthing battles, including prayer, substitute wives, badgering, bartering, and now we will add superstition. Look with me at Genesis 30, verse 14. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found uh, mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then you may lie with, with then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field this evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore, bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again. She bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Well, here we have the mandrakes. 
the Mandrake episodes really kind of heightens the scheming and the conception negotiations. Uh, Mandrakes are a Mediterranean herb believed to have had kind of aphrodisiac properties and believed to help with fertility and conception for barren women. Thus, Rachel desperately wanted some mandrakes, right? I mean, she has not had any children up to this point, only her servant. Ironically, though, the mandrake fiasco did nothing for Rachel, but resulted in another son for Leah. Uh, Despite their scheming, uh, God was listening. God was in the midst of it. God listened to Leah, and she bore two more sons. And God remembered Rachel. He would eventually, re- he would remember Rachel. He, he would see her plight. He, he would see the hardship that, that Rachel has experienced. You know, up to this point, Rachel has been scheming and manipulating and doing everything she can to get the upper hand. Certainly she did not deserve God's favor, yet God was for her. He listened to her so that she had a son. We see quite clearly that God is the giver of life. He remembers his redemptive purposes. Uh, The birth of Joseph was according to God's sovereign grace, not Mandrake's superstition or social customs. So after seven years of strife and disappointment, Rachel bore a son, and and God took away her reproach. She did not deserve it, but God remembered her. In, In all of this, again, God had a plan Joseph, as we know, would eventually save his people from the famine. And all of Jacob's sons would become the fathers of the tribes of Israel. God remembers his redemptive purposes despite our scheming. God could have easily established um, Jacob's line through Leah. He could have easily just allowed Rachel to kind of uh, fall to the wayside. But God, God remembered. God remembered and he was up to something. And he poured on his sovereign grace, his undeserved kindness, his fatherly faithfulness, so that we would know, so that Rachel and Leah and Jacob would know that he cares and he's in the midst of every detail. Well, what we see here. What we see here as we, as we step back and look at the whole passage is that God's grand story of redemption is beginning to take shape. We see the continuation of the Abrahamic covenant through Jacob and his sons. Uh, we're, we're introduced really to some of the key players in God's sovereign plan of redemption. Well, We kind of moved on from it quickly, but Judah was born to Leah, and Judah would be the kingly line through the David the Davidic and Messianic line through Tamar. Levi was also born to Leah, and Levi would be the priestly line, which also makes connections with the Messiah. Here God is putting the pieces in place for his future plan of redemption. For the person who knows the end of the story, this is kind of an an aha moment. So, So this is when God established the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is when God initiated the kingly and priestly line of the Messiah. So this is how God would sovereignly provide a sinless Savior through the sinister actions and otherwise stubborn people. This is what he's doing. Uh, Amidst a TV reality show drama, God was building the family that would become 
the family tree of the Messiah. And in many ways, this is our story. We were, before coming to Christ, we were sinful, selfish, and scheming. We did not deserve God's kindness. We did not deserve his fatherly nod and look and tenderness and care. Even after becoming Christians, even while we're in Christ, we we are too often drawn towards the fleshly ways of sinful, selfish, scheming, seeking to get the upper hand in our own ways. Probably not wife wars, but, you know, other ways. This is our story. And we can take heart and we can take confidence that God's fatherly faithfulness is at work. For you and me, we read and relish this clear testimony of God's fatherly faithfulness, knowing that he is indeed our father and he is indeed at work in our life. If he can work through this kind of mess, I don't know what your life is like, but he can and is working in your life. Let's pray together. Father, we've taken some time to to think about uh, this very real true story that happened many years ago, but it's still instructive for us today. Uh, We're thankful that it displays your character. Uh, We're thankful for your sovereign grace. And we're thankful for your fatherly faithfulness. Lord, really, we're quite in awe uh, that you, the creator of all things, you, the king of the universe, you, the Lord of lords, would call us your children. And indeed we are. What love you have poured upon us. And that you would care us, care for us because you're our father. You're tender with us. You're merciful to us. You direct our path according to your goodwill for your good purposes and for our ultimate good. We praise you, Lord. We thank you and we worship you. Lord, I pray for each individual here that they would, they would really have a renewed sense of your care for them, your tenderness towards them, and that they would believe that you are for them, you are with them, and that you are accomplishing your good purposes in them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand and respond in song. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit us online at redemption.ca.